Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast, back on home soil. I'm Jeff Lemon. Uh, big show today. Lots of things to cover. The uh, tailing off of the Pakistan Australia tour, the Women's World Cup semi-finals and final are coming up this week. Uh, we'll be previewing that chat around a women's Pakistan Super League and a women's Indian Premier League. Both of those apparently on the cards. England losing a series in the West Indies and uh, whatever else we stumble upon along the way. Besides, uh, but we'll start the show with some seriousness. Uh, I'll usually say I'm pleased to have with me Adam Collins. Um, I'm even more pleased. I'm literally pleased that we still have with us Adam Collins after he was, as a lot of you would have heard, he was in a bad car crash on the way to the airport to leave Pakistan on the freeway. The driver of the car, Rayman, is miraculously coming good. He had cranial surgery, was out for about 24 hours. He's now conscious and not in critical condition anymore and, and the prognosis is as good as it can be for him. So that's uh, some sort of sliver of good news out of things. Um, Adam's pretty beaten up and has made it back to London um, and in true Adam form after that happening on Saturday. It's Monday and he's recording a podcast episode. <laughs> Final word, can't stop, won't stop. Um, <laughs> glad to see your face. Yeah, good to see yours as well. Um, I suppose I, first thing I want to say is just thank everybody for uh, the enormity of the good wishes that have been directed my way uh, since this story became public. I mean, it was sort of semi-public after it happened because a lot of people needed to know. But when Pete wrote his story and, you know, there's a pretty sort of graphic description of what happened, so many people got in touch and I was very grateful for that. And to those I haven't gotten back to, I will, uh, when I've had a chance just to stop and prop them pretty bad at the moment uh so i mean not bad in relative terms i'm, I'm obviously going to make a full recovery very quickly but in a lot of pain where the seatbelt did its job and effectively saved my life that's probably the, the main message i want to relay out of this is that i have been cavalier too often about seatbelts not so much in australia and england but when i've been in the subcontinent only because i suppose to an extent you assimilate in those situations where there aren't always belts to put on you become a little bit less uh, religious as you might be uh, and had i maintained that on again off again approach uh, on friday night or Saturday, early Saturday morning, to be precise. But had I not had a belt on, I mean, in all probability, I wouldn't be here, given the the um, severity of the accident. So, yeah, to explain what happened, because a lot of people are asking what happened, and I know that story's behind a paywall, so it's not as though it's easy to actually get the information. But in summary, we were driving to the airport, uh, Rahman obviously in the front right of the car and myself in the back left, and we were just going on as all normal. I'd sent a tweet out about 10 minutes earlier um, expressing gratitude to all of our hosts in Pakistan and I suppose I was quite content. A job I felt pretty well done in Pakistan and also just couldn't wait to get home to see Rachel and Winnie. I was just so excited about getting in that car and having said goodbye to you, Jeff, and all of the colleagues on the tour. There's a, you know, a heavy-heartedness at the end of any tour, but 
I was just so excited about flying and I had my head down in my phone sort of replying to replying to tweets of goodwill from our Pakistani friends who were replying to me as you do in, in those situations and and then the crash happened and at that point now I don't really remember what happened. I think my brain is compartmentalised as they say a little bit of the trauma that followed but I know what happened from what I told people at the time and contemporaneous uh, I suppose uh, documentary evidence of what I um, thought had happened I I think I probably blacked out initially um, because when I finally opened the door um, there were about at least 20 people standing around the car and I was just obviously asking them to call an ambulance or demanding they call an ambulance but that had already happened so I I suspect there was a little bit of time that might have elapsed Um, I thought Raymond was dead um, uh, initially because he was you know without being too graphic he, he looked like he was dead and the truck was pretty much in the car with us um well the front because yeah the way it happened was we just ran straight into the back of a truck at least that's how i understand it i'm not sure about the specifics i'm not sure about how i'm not sure about why a truck was in the right hand side of the freeway in a stationary position i just can't answer those questions um but to the best of my understanding we were just going along as normal and then um yeah, the, the front of the car hit the back left of the truck, which is why the back left of the truck was effectively in the vehicle. And again, I'm just a bit of deductive reasoning here, but Raymond's seat was reclined. I suspect the impact sent, jolted his seat backwards. So he was sort of reclined all the way back when I saw him and the truck, um, the back of the truck is probably where his head would have been which is why i sort of immediately at the time jumped to the worst conclusion but he was immovable because the door was um blocked by the truck as well that side of the whole car was blocked mm. so and then these extraordinary strangers i mean this is the bit that i mean I, I keep thinking about the bit that i do have a bit more of a recollection of and i was part of it but by no means was i the main part of this i was just kind of one of the many people who just pulled the car like just lifted this car effectively away from the truck in order for them to access Raymond and they got him out of there, um, out of the wreckage. By that point, a lot of people were very aware of my well-being and were fussing over me. I mean, I, I must have looked pretty out of it. I guess I had blood on me and that kind of thing. And, yeah, they... I think they got me pulled to one side, they pulled him to the other. I was on my feet, though. I was just kind of emphasising that I was okay I knew there was something not right in my chest. You know, the impact of what was immediate to me was the seatbelt. But, um, yeah, they, they got me to one side and then this kind of quite astonishing series of events ensued. I mean, this is already a wild story, I suppose, but a guy who was pulled up among many cars on the freeway came up to me and, again, this is like my recollections. They may not be completely 100% accurate, but I'm pretty sure this is what happened because I was in shock. He he clarified that I was going to the airport. I think I'd said I was going to the airport. That's why I was in the car. And he said to me, I'll get you to the airport. And he identified himself as a government official. And it was this like black government looking style jet car, Jeff, you know what I mean? Like mm. we saw a lot of them in Pakistan, like big bulky vehicle. And before I knew it, my bags were taken out of the vehicle that I was in, moved into this other car. There was the main dude and his two what seemed to be like offsiders or like security personnel possibly. Yeah, detail. Detail, yeah, detail. And I was still 
pretty freaked out and in kind of really wanted to see the driver and was taken over to see him and he was propped up on a boulder um i guess it was the median strip i suppose hard to know for sure mm-hmm. some sort of boulder and it looked to me like he was mopping his own blood up with his with his hand like i saw him with his hand to his head um, mopping up some of the blood so i thought well look if he's conscious conscious and sat up and mopping himself down in all probability he's the luckiest bloke in the world mm. and these guys were saying we're just going to take you to the airport and i thought well there's not an awful lot more i can do here and almost unwittingly i just kind of went oh well, okay well I, I guess i'm going to the airport and i sent you a message and the team we were there with i called rach mm. um texted a couple of other people remarkably lucid text by the way i looked back at them yesterday mm. I, I don't remember sending them don't remember oh, any no. of it. Yeah. I, I remember well, none that's of That's what it. we thought. That's what we thought. When when they came in, it was like, all right, well, uh, it was basically reading that situation and going, okay, this is the this is the moment, this is the sort of 20 minutes of lucidity before the shock really kicks in and you'll be yeah. pretty much uh, incommunicado after that. But sort of at the moment, yeah, it is It is strange how often in a, an accident situation your first instinct is to reassure everybody else that you're okay, even though yeah. you're obviously well, not okay well I, yeah and reading it back that's exactly what i was saying wasn't it don't panic i'm fine i'm flying basically mm. i'm like what the fuck how did i, I, I yeah. get, it's just i guess it was a combination of shock adrenaline and yep. that underpinning sort of sense that i need to get home i need to get home i need yeah. to get home you know and the last the last fixed thing in your mind is i'm going home therefore yeah. i have to keep going home yeah. there's no question of like i need to stop and go to a hospital and no. get another flight in a week's time or whatever and and of course and i don't want to be blase about this i i acknowledge now that i shouldn't have done that i can i'm i'm big enough to accept that i did the wrong thing by getting on that flight i just at that exact juncture i just didn't know what else to do and there was an ability there was the ability for me to get to the flight these guys had kindly picked me up and even though I was all over the place, I think adrenaline got me that far and I had glass all through my hair and beard and in my pockets and in my shoes. So I was pulling out chunks of glass in the queue to check in. I mean, how I, how I got let on is beyond me. I was mopping up blood with my fingers and rubbing it on my jeans type thing. Not that I had lots of blood on me from myself. I had some cuts, but it was mostly his Raymond's blood on me, I think. Must have, there's, no, there's no way it could have been yeah. my blood so it was his blood on me and yeah I, I said to a chap at the check-in desk you know I sort of spoke to him very softly and said I've been involved in a very serious car accident I need you to get me on this plane can you get me on this plane and he just did it this guy just did it as you would know Remarkable. Jeff all of our luggage was way overweight I'm sure you had similar problems you know, I already built into my thinking on the way to the airport. I'm going to have to bullshit my way through this. Um, so I wore my Pakistan cricket tracksuit jacket that they gave me from the the scorers back in Ralpindi, and I thought this might help me bullshit my way onto the plane with 46 kilos worth of luggage to get in. You know, all the recording, all the all the broadcasting equipment, plus the extraordinary gifts that we've been um, showered with whilst over there, and you know, the the rug that I bought for Rach from Mother's Day, <laughs> and Tommy and I bought some carpets uh, on on the last night. As you were there too, Jeff, they were they were a bit yes. heavier than I factored in. Yes, Tom also got pinged for excess baggage. Yeah, yeah. I was I just, trying to shepherd him through the airport. When no, we left. I, I definitely deserve to get done for excess baggage, but you know, at that particular time, that was the last thing on my mind, and I got through, and this this I think it was Abdul got me to the next bit. Then there was an hour in passports. And, you know, there's no way you jump in that queue. As you know, there's foreign passports, a foreign passport, a foreign passport. Mm. There is no way mm. you're skipping that queue. And there were people fucking everywhere. So the time I'd built into, right, 
get through, get medical attention, get through, get checked out, get on a plane. I remember we spoke, didn't we? Didn't you tell me to do that? I think yeah. you told me get through, find a doctor. And I'm like, that's all I could think of, get through, find a doctor. Because yeah. you told me to do that to make sure I hadn't broken any ribs. And at that point, I thought there was a decent chance I'd broken ribs. Yeah. Um, but um, there was no getting yeah, through. I, I, I spoke to you briefly. I don't remember, don't know if you remember. But yeah, again, you sounded surprisingly um, with it for someone who shouldn't yeah. have been surprisingly with it mm. or with it at all. Well, so all my attitude was, I've just got to get through here. And it took me over an hour to get through passports. Um, I had enough time to, you know, my phone was dying, but I had enough time just to kind of send the important texts to call Rachel mm-hmm. again, because she was obviously frazzled, um, mm-hmm. to call a couple of people in Melbourne. I was mostly worried it was going to become a diplomatic incident. Because, you know, my former mm-hmm. life, I've got a sense of how these things can escalate. And I thought the last thing I want is to become a consular case and get stuck in the country and have all the attention well, and all well, the resources for the government. for the cricket, the, the cricket the ramifications as well. You Like, you know, PCB wanting to have a, totally. a, a an incident-free tour and then you're like, God, am I the incident? You know, exactly. Thing exactly. That, that creates the problem that, that someone's, you know, in, in danger here and all the rest of it. Yeah, that, that, that's, exa- that's precisely it. Like, again, it's hard to divorce how I feel now to how I felt at the moment it was happening. But at the moment, all I could think of was, low profile, get out of the country, just fucking get out of here. Get back to Rachel and Winnie, right? So because it's so long it elapsed in the passports queue and I just, you know, I don't know how, I just put on a massive front, got through, I could feel my chest throbbing, especially on the right-hand side, which I've since learnt all the muscles are torn over there, but that's, you know, whatever. Mm. And the flight was boarding. I'm like, okay, well, there goes any meaningful yeah. chance. I, I well, did. yeah, I'm either getting on it or not getting on it. Yeah, I, yeah. And at that point, you know, I'd gone to the bathroom. I'd checked, yeah. you know, I'd, I'd done as much as I thought I could do reasonably at that point. I also am aware that it wasn't responsible to jump on that plane. But I just, yeah, it was an irresponsible decision made with the right reason, with the right, I don't know. Hmm. I was trying to do the right thing. Yeah, and I also, it's, it's and I also an thought getting thing it. as well. It's, yeah. it's like, a, you know, the way... Um, an animal crawls off somewhere where it's in pain. You know, when that's happening, the only thing you want to do is get home. You want to be yeah. in the place where you feel safe. Yeah, that's right. And I think the other point was at that particular time, I thought the driver was okay. I thought Raymond was okay. Only on what I'd seen. Like I thought it's a fucking miracle, but somehow I thought maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought. I mean, obviously hitting a truck at probably a hundred odd Ks an hour, like we were on the freeway. I, you know, when I was doing the story with Pete, I, I was just pretty, I was just assuming how fast we were going because we were going at whatever pace you go on a freeway. We weren't. Mm. There was no brakes. There was no. There was no like um, no traffic. Yeah, you know, like how you know, there's that sense. I've been in one car accident before, and my enduring memory is the screeching of the brakes. There was no screeching yeah. of brakes. You know, whatever happened yeah. happened at, at an organic pace. So, but yeah, with all that in mind, I thought, okay, well, if I slip out the back door here, no one's going to notice, and I know it's going to go public, and I know it's going to be a big deal, but I'll be home by then. In the end, that's exactly what happened. Got to Doha. You know, as you know, you can't really send, you can't really do much WhatsApp from Doha because the Wi-Fi and all that. But managed to get on mm. the second flight. Um, said to the very kind woman next to me, who was, um, she was a, a an Iraqi refugee um, uh, to Sydney and lives in London now, um, and and a lawyer and very intelligent. I could tell immediately she was extraordinarily with it, an intelligent woman. Her, her husband happens to be a a heart surgeon as well so I'm like I'm probably in a good place here and she was great source of comfort um, for the next leg again just trying to keep my head down but I confided in her and said look I'm fine I'm not going to keel over here but 
you know, equally, just keep an eye on me. Got back to London and then had two hours at Heathrow, which is, you know, was always going to happen. Two hours before I saw my bag and, and all the rest of it. And then like the most remarkable sort of series of, not the most remarkable, the whole story is whack, but I just thought it was like, something about the energy you know two separate people came up to me at Heathrow to say they were listening had just been listening to the final word mm. Barry then Harry um Barry initially Barry and Harry yeah and I, I mean because I hadn't spoken to anyone really I had to just kind of like dump this on both of them so if they're listening Barry and Harry thank you for hearing me out when I was in a pretty bad way especially Barry who had to hear about 10 minutes of it probably the the short version of what you and I have, have discussed just now um, as I was in this, in, in this horrible wait for the bag, sat on the end of the trolley, you know, I, I'd almost used all my adrenaline by that point, I suppose. And by that stage, the bruising had started and my, st- my you know, black mm. and blue all left my chest and tum- tummy and, and, and so on. And then, by that stage, if you're thinking straight, you'd say, fuck the bags, I'll come get them another day. Yeah, yeah, on. yeah, that, that's right. I suppose it was mostly, Jeff, the fact that I knew I had thousands and thousands of dollars of equipment in the bags for, for work stuff, right? You can't, you can't be sort mm. of messing with that kind of stuff. But yeah, and then pop myself in an Uber, which was probably the right thing to do to pull the, pull the Band-Aid off in terms of getting in a car again. Rachel said that to me. She goes, just, just get in an Uber. I mean, just do it. You'll be better for it on a variety of levels, mm. just getting in a car again. Got home and then within 10 minutes of getting home, I was a shivering mess and I was in extraordinary pain. And that's when I realised, oh, fuck, that's, that's, uh, that mm. this is, this is um, the natural, you know, the minute I had the chance to relax and sit on the sofa was the minute my body started to tell me that I was obviously worse off than I originally thought. Nowhere near as bad as it could have been, but, you know, as I said, a bunch of tall muscles, um, spent the whole day in A&E yesterday. yesterday. They put me under the CAT scan machine and found that, you know, basically I've got inflammation everywhere from where – I'd never heard this before, but apparently your skeleton, like, retracts then snaps back in a situation like that. Like, all the bones kind of go out of their position and come back again. I'm, I'm probably mm. explaining this badly, but the uh, skeletal muscular system has a response to that, a natural response right. to that sort of thing happening. Um, I guess which, they flex. I guess bones kind of – bend if yeah. they don't break they they're yeah. kind of bendy which is why and the doctor was explaining to me that in the emergency room like that's why different parts of my body are hurting at different times so yesterday i'm like mm. fuck i didn't feel it yesterday but my left ribs are broken clearly like i've got broken ribs surely mm. i might have a fracture in my back back beneath my neck is throbbing i can't lay down i didn't feel it yesterday but i feel it now and he's like yeah that's natural different parts of your body will as they get back to where they were before provide you with acute intense pain and unfortunately that's expanded today to different parts of my ribs and different parts of my back and I'm, I've had a bit of a tough morning but obviously I'm keeping this in perspective right like the seatbelt has saved my life and this is a function of that no dramas and yeah and that, that's probably where the story ends other than to say that all of the colleagues in Pakistan obviously were remarkable as you'd expect them to be uh, you know Barat, Mel and, and, and Pete who were still in Pakistan immediately um, made representations to the hotel and to the PCB and the PCB have been wonderful. Sammy especially, Sammy Al-Hassan, who's the director of comms at, at the PCB and in supplying information and getting a, um, a, a, a communication chain going with the hospital and therefore uh, the family and, and just sort of making sure we knew where things were at. That was probably the most horrible moment of the whole thing was when the information came through that, um, that Raymond was experiencing he was in a very serious condition and required brain surgery. Mm. Like that's when I freaked out completely. I'm um, thinking that shit, you know, I thought he was fine when I left and now he's about to die. And you know, that's, that's just horrible. As it turns out, it looks like he's going to have a, 
a month in hospital and and you know and might be more surgery required and all the rest of it but mercifully according to the reports yesterday from the hospital he he looks as though he's gonna um he's out of the woods in the short term and that's obviously extremely great news yeah prognosis is that he'll make a proper recovery Um, yeah it'll take some time to do it and and the hotel's employees have are all covered with insurances for these sorts of things and yeah um so yeah the situation is uh, less bad than it could be basically yeah and um just one last thought on my experience yesterday at the, at the hospital nhs you know we spent a lot of time two years ago in the pandemic you know standing on our doorsteps clapping for the nhs and you know, as a political actor, I suppose I spent a lot of time thinking about public health funding and did in my former life. To watch how stretched they were in the emergency room yesterday, or A&E as they call it here, fairly remarkable. I mean, I, I, I spent a lot of time sitting in chairs waiting yesterday, but, yeah, I, I can't quite come to terms with how under-resourced even that... My small experience, how under-resourced they are. Like, imagine there was a major accident mm. or something. Like, yeah, it's just a, another... A, yet another reminder of how um, we depend so much on our socialised public health system and yet the funding is such that it, it you know it feels like it is hanging by a thread at any moment um, and again mm. that's just my small little experience but I sat there all day like bewildered at it. I'm like how can so many people and it wasn't even packed but how can so many people be waiting so long and that comes down to resourcing doesn't it so not that I'm mm. at all um, critical of the treatment I got more just like wow this is this really is a this really is something that we pay lip service to about the funding of the NHS, but in practice, um, it, it clearly is is a an underfunded, crucial community service uh, and and uh, government service. Anyway, that's just a side point. But yeah, so as as it stands today, what are we? We're probably fifty or sixty hours after the incident. Yes, I'm in a lot of like short term pain, but um, I've got drugs. I've got doctor's orders to do nothing for mm-hmm. at least a week, which is fine. I've got a wedding on Sunday, which I won't miss for anything, but I won't be going there and eat 20 beers either. Um, not that I have 20 beers in the, in the best of times, no, but you know what I'm trying be, to say. You'll be wheeled in upright on one of those trolleys that they yeah. use to move refrigerators. Yeah, that, 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 that's right. I'll, in the corner. I'll be taking it very easy and just sort of chipping away at you know, light duties with work until I feel completely up to it. And yeah, sort of just, I suppose, just... Uh, I don't think I'll be complaining about the speed of my Wi-Fi anytime soon, you know what I mean? I think hopefully yeah, yeah. if an experience like this can provide me with a little bit more perspective on what matters um, minute to minute, then I'll, then I'll gratefully receive that. Well, what, what stood out to this, this little bell that kept ringing for me was towards the start of the trip in Islamabad when you went off and, and spent an evening with Shoal Bakhtar who drove you to dinner and you were telling me about how you jumped in the front seat of the car and looked for the seatbelt and he said, no, no seatbelts. We don't do seatbelts in Pakistan. That was you in the first few days of the trip and then you on the last day of the trip was, without thinking about it, just putting your seatbelt on because that's what you're accustomed to doing and, you know, the difference between doing or not doing that is, 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 is all, you know, the difference between being alive and not. Yeah, I mean, I mean, really it is the case that it became a running joke, didn't it? I mean, um, obviously we weren't in the same car the whole way through the trip, but we were a number of times. And it, it becomes a running joke that, um, that seatbelts just aren't considered to be like an optional extra. They're like, and I'm not mm. sort of casting aspersions on, on, you know, the suitability of, you know, car safety. I'm not, I, I don't want to get too deeply into to that. But, and that's not the first experience I've had with this either. You know, in India, we've in the past noticed that in the back seat, it's a bit more blasé about these things. And we kind of accept, Jeff, we spoke about it on the podcast a couple of weeks ago about what a, what a wild ride it was in Karachi 
driving the streets there, but we always felt safe because there's like this onboard mm. computer of these drivers. Like they're, they're so conditioned to the madness that it all kind of works yeah. out and they all become excellent drivers as a result. And also usually in traffic, everybody's going so slowly that, you know, yeah, if you get crashed into it, it'll be by an auto rickshaw at 13 kilometres an hour. It's not, they're not necessarily life and death speeds, but, you know, yeah. once you find yourself on the freeway at one in the morning um it's a different story yeah i, I think i'm i'm grateful for having grown up with those tac ads just hardwired into your brain about putting a seatbelt on so mm. when i was in it this was a quite a nice car that we were in i don't remember what make or model or anything but my only thing i remember was the hotel car was a nice car taking me to the airport and i don't know whether i clocked it at the time but i'm like oh nice car seatbelt in the back Mm. Um, and, and there's and room to put it on you're not squeezed in the back with three people where you can't reach the seatbelt clips and whatever and you say oh well fuck it you know yeah it's only five that, that, minutes that's right that's right yeah. but but again yeah that, that'll change my attitude towards this and i hope it changes everyone's right. anyone who's been even remotely in touch with me about this or has been touched by this via the the um, very sad component with raymond um mm. that they know that you know putting a belt on yeah, it might be an inconvenience for a variety of reasons. We've all been there. But, um, yeah, I, I'm proof positive that, you know, the old adage about seatbelts save lives is um, it, it was mm. absolutely the case with me. And if I didn't have it hardwired into me from, you know, age dot about the importance of that uh, and I was more around and I was more sort of in the mindset of how we had been in Pakistan through the previous month, then maybe I wouldn't have had it on. And then, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't be here. So um, that's, that's, the, that's an important part of this, I think. So that's your, you know, that was that was a very unfortunate exit experience from Pakistan. Um, it wasn't. I get the impression from talking to you, it's not like you go away from there thinking that's the defining experience because it's this contrast of having this this terrifying thing happen at the end of a trip that was anything but. You know, at the end of a, like I've just been thinking about that trip myself in the twenty four hours or so since I got home about about how significant it felt to to be there about the number of conversations I had with people locally about this, uh, about the excitement of getting to know a place that I knew relatively little about and that I had no kind of cultural connection with. It feels increasingly special having got back that we got to go there, we got to do that. We we, we got to go and watch a test series in Pakistan and... and um, and watch a brilliant finish and and see those venues go to those stadiums that we've heard about sort of make those imaginary places real in our own minds yeah that that's it i mean um even out of that horrible experience that we've just spent a long time talking about and i'm sorry i've rambled a bit there i'm, I'm mindful that you know i'm not going to be at my most coherent today hopefully you forgive me i'm sure you will that even in that moment that i explained before about all of those strangers coming together to pull the car away yeah maybe that would happen anywhere but it just felt like it summed up my pakistan experience like there's just this sense of like goodwill between common man there like and and we and we were on the receiving end of that constantly so much gratitude and i know we were in a privileged position being broadly white journalists you know and thus seen as doing them a good turn being there from Australia and helping support the series. So I, I, I appreciate my privileged position uh, in that pyramid. Don't get mm -hmm. me wrong. But still, it was everywhere you looked. That was when I was in the markets with Barat, um, in the electronic markets and, you know, watching the way that the the, uh, the merchants deal with each, dealt with each other and, like, they're like theoretically competitors but all helping each other out. And, um, yeah, there was, there was just this spirit there which I loved. And the perception reality thing, like – 
I reckon there was until very recently a perception, and yes, this is this is not to say it's not been a dangerous place, but what happened in 2002 at the hotel in Karachi, what happened in 2009 at Lahore, um, you know, the very fact that Osama bin Laden was found and killed in Abbottabad, Abbottabad, sorry, get my pronunciation right, uh, in 2011, there was a perception that it was an incredibly dangerous place filled with terrorists and you could be picked off by any of them at any given moment. The chasm between that and the reality that we experienced, Jeff, I mean, I'm not saying that we were mm. sort of living the life, everyday life of a Pakistani, but we, we pushed the boat out there a fair bit. We did a lot of stuff that we probably didn't think we'd have the chance to do in our four weeks in Pakistan. And on each occasion, we, we stepped away feeling completely nourished and, and, and appreciated, and we appreciated in turn um, the way that we were treated. So, yeah, it, it was totally magical that's the right word for it and the fact that it got the grandstand finish on the field too right you know the final session of the final day and sure australia looked destined to win that test match from about lunch maybe drinks uh, on day five but for it to come to the final session and to be won the way that it was um you know that 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 all adds to it and reinforces why it's a a tour that will well, certainly for us and i think a lot of people who love test mm. cricket won't be forgotten in our lifetimes also, for it to be won by um, a prodigious effort from an Australian captain, and I know there's been a huge Patrick Cummins love in um, over the last few months, and it, it can be overblown at times, I'm sure, but still, the the tactical smarts, the, the the sort of leadership by character, the intelligence of understanding what was going on around him more broadly than what was happening on the field, um, and then on the field, Pat Cummins taking 12 wickets, an average of 22 on some of the deadest pitches you've ever seen. You know, that that gives you a measure of the kind of player that you're dealing with, the kind of player who's who's leading Australia. Uh, that felt really important in itself. Yeah. I uh, haven't really thought too much about the cricket since, but, like, um, it, it feels like a world away since we were recording that Day 5 podcast on the ground. It was such a, a happy experience going through, for instance, the Nathan Lyon story arc and being able to... You know, finished the mm. series with 12 wickets and five of them on the final day and how important that was for him and, you know, almost resetting or helping to balance up the, the checkbook after having conceded a lot of runs and not taken a lot of wickets um, at Rolpindi and then Karachi with the exception of that final blast on day five. So I think the bit that, and Dan Brady wrote about this overnight, I caught it this morning, that stands out to me is the fact that they had to hold on tight for a really long time and accept that the conditions were never going to suit them. It was never going to break mm. up the way they wanted to run a mark on day five. Like they just had to be humble about it, about the situation they were in. They were extraordinarily foreign conditions. And by that, I mean, you know, that was never going to be perfect for the seamers or for the spinners. Um, mm. They had to rely on making more conservative runs. It was never going to be fast scoring, which is usually when Australia are at their best. Um, and, you know, from time to time we were critical of the criticism back home about, oh, why don't they put that bloody foot down? Actually being there and seeing what a bloody slog it was. They had to accept all of that and stay the course and just ride the wave and believe that they had the mindset that would be strong enough. The mindset coupled mm. with the skills when it really mattered to take the chance a second time. They didn't grasp it at Karachi, but they'd, they'd have enough in the tank to get there in, in Lahore. I think that's really commendable because the wheels could easily have fallen off, Jeff, in Lahore. We saw that in the UAE four years ago. Extraordinary draw in Dubai and a really good start at Abu Dhabi, but they were gone inside three and a half days. I'm not saying I expected that, but 
I wouldn't have been surprised had that played out. But they're made of sterner stuff now, and I think that comes down to Cummins. I think McDonald's a big part of that story too. Cummins was incredibly complimentary of um, McDonald in in the post play press conference about the plans they'd constructed together. It was as though they'd you know had this blueprint they weren't willing to back away from, mm. and even having missed out at Karachi, they still believed in it. So that'll bolster the case for McDonald to be appointed full time, I'm sure. But yeah, that bit, the winning away from home, but the way they won away from home and, and being humble about it and, and surrendering to it, uh, I think it's mm. an important stepping stone for them, especially with India in mind next year. And Lyons, representative of that hard work story in a way. I, I know I was talking about some of his career stuff um, on the last Daily Show, I think, but yeah, just looking at the... Um, the record of Australian spinners in Asia, 107 wickets to 32 for him. Only Shane Warne's the only Australian spinner to have more predictably enough. And that's 127 at, you know, at 26, so at a better average. But it's not that far ahead in terms of the, like, it shows how, at least Lyon's consistency in that he's always been able to be picked. You know, he hasn't been mm, um, mm. knocked off by these Asian tours in the way that most Australian spinners do. They tend, you know, <laughs> they tend to tour India or Pakistan or somewhere and that's about the last time they get a chance because they get monstered. And he may not always run through teams, but he doesn't get monstered uh, particularly. So, yeah, that that seems significant as well, I suppose. And, um, and there was also the, so people listening to the radio wouldn't have known this, but the amusing significance that... At, literally at the literally in the minutes after calling the victory, you were also watching Lance Franklin kick his one thousandth goal, um, which I was streaming for you from from Australia. Um, the, the people who listen to the show knowing that you're an absolute Hawthorne tragic and thus uh, still deeply in love with Lance Franklin, regardless of which club he plays for. Now it was the double whammy of, of emotion. You're calling the what, third Australian series victory ever in Pakistan at the same time as the sixth Australian rules footballer passes the thousand goal mark. To the trained ear, I mean, first of all, I'm grateful you didn't put that computer screen in front of me until after the final wicket because... Yeah, um, I, I made a decide. We were about two and a half minutes behind real time. I held it back. Yeah, so our panel op, Pado, who did a great job helping produce the program for SEN, was updating me on the screen and he said... But he's lining up, he's kicked it. And I had that like brief, like internal sobbing moment where I went, <gasps> and I already kind of reconciled the fact that I wouldn't see it. I popped a tweet up before saying, I know I'm not going to see Bud kick this. I know I'm going to be on air at the time, and it's okay. I'm at peace with this. I love him forever, and I can't wait to watch it later or something like that. You know, because Buddy, I'm more likely to get emotional now that I am about the car accident, by the way. But Buddy is, um, is, uh, representative of some of the best days of my life. And that's not just because I love Hawthorne. It's because, as you know, Jeff, and as any football fan will know, any sports fan who goes week in, week out will appreciate, it's the relationships with the people you're going with. You ride the highs, you ride the lows. And because of Buddy, we got to have this Mm. thing happen to us as Hawthorne supporters in 2008. We got to have this era that, you know, as early 20s, I was 24 in 2008, and we got to have this amazing experience together with some of my dearest friends in the world who I love passionately and would do anything for me and I'd do anything for them. And Buddy unlocked all of that. So, yeah, I, I, Buddy's a far bigger figure, a transformative figure in my life than just a footballer because of all of that. But, yes, to the trained ear, you will notice when coming back from the ad breaks after the, um, the final wicket, we went, I, I probably summed up with Wacker for a couple of minutes and then, uh-huh. Bat, and then Brat came to join me and I back-announced 
the Australian win and acknowledge the symmetry of the, the history that was going on, not the symmetry, but the, 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 the coincidence of history coincidence. happening at the same time at the Sydney Cricket Ground. And if you're listening very, very carefully, you'll hear me start breaking down at that point and quickly throwing to Baz to continue to pick up the, pick up the discussion. Because had I kept talking, I was going to start sobbing on radio. <laughs> yeah, it all hit me there and then. But no, I did keep it together. So yeah, it was beautiful that that happened. I think someone, Benny Horn told Pete that it all happened within 60 seconds of each other or something in real time, which is crazy. Right. Absolutely crazy that these two things <laughs> happened within 60 seconds of each other. You know, no one will ever kick a thousand goals again. People are saying it might happen one day. It will never happen again. And the, um, the winning in Pakistan, the way Australia did, was pretty cool. Yeah, so that's a bit indulgent, isn't it? Um, spending five minutes talking about Big Bud, but uh, yep. as I say, it's, it's that kind of podcast today. <laughs> yes, very quickly. Look, I don't think we'll be spending a whole lot of time looking at Australia playing some one days in Pakistan. We left the country... <laughs> That probably gives an indication of, of how deeply we're invested in that. Uh, I am. I am. I am not going to watch. Unfortunate. I am not. I, I, no. I, you're not going to watch them either. I'm not going to watch them. We will talk about them on the podcast next week. In fact, we might get one of our colleagues to come on and do it for us because yeah, we've watched enough. <laughs> yeah, we've done enough. We've done our part. Uh, we've got the Women's World Cup to finals to watch as well. We did also see some some uh, nice clips from Glenn Maxwell's wedding. Oh yeah, oh, great. as well. So so that was that was adorable. That you know over the border, you know huge huge wedding. These sort of weeks of weddings that he's been having over yes. there. Um, all of the different ceremonies, but uh, but glad that Max is having a happy time there. Yeah, and there's some squad news too that's been breaking. So Josh Inglis has COVID, which in theory, when you add the Mitch Marsh injury to it, so Mitch Marsh has done a hip flexor. Inglis has got COVID. They've brought Matt Renshaw to fly over. They just announced that then. Totally chuffed for him. I know it's not his form of the game necessarily, but that's a window. That's a window for him. I'm thinking more and more that Matt Renshaw might be the Damian Martin of this generation. And I, <laughs> Okay, I, please yeah, expand. I'm thinking more and more. Well, Martin loses his test spot and has to spend mm-hmm. years in the wilderness and comes back mm-hmm. via one-day cricket and gets back into the test team. I've just got a feeling Renshaw might do the same thing. Because Renshaw's one-day game as a middle-order player has improved Mm. out of sight in the last two or three years. So if he does get the chance to play in Pakistan, likewise Cam Green. I mean, I'm not sure where Cam Green fits in as a one-day player. You know what that means, though? That means that Renshaw will come back into the test team at six, push Cameron Green up to three, and Cameron (laughs) Green is a new Ricky Ponte, (laughs) and he can bowl 145Ks. I was going to say, I think think Cameron Green's going to be one of Australia's best players for a decade. Who knows where he's going to end up? Cameron Green could end up opening the bowling for Australia. Hmm. Which is wild to think, but he's good enough. He's quick enough. It's whether they want to risk having him do both roles. But he, he could feasibly be a frontline quick, which is mm. totally wild in the modern. You know, you don't think of that, do you, in modern cricket? He's not Kyle Miles, Kyle Miles rather, who we'll talk about in a bit. He's um does yes. like, does like more than that. But yes, Matt Renshaw flying to Pakistan as we as we talk. Uh, right. Speaking of Pakistan. Let's move into our next subject, the women's domestic competitions, uh, Mm. which to date um, have only consisted of the Big Bash, the Super League in England, and then the 100. So it was the Pakistan Cricket Board that got this moving. Um, The Caribbean Premier League is also supposedly planning a three-team competition, but uh, last November when Ramis Raja was taking over, he said, without giving detail, he said that he wanted a women's PSL to happen as soon as possible. Um, 2nd of March, they announced that it would happen. They'd start with six teams, the full complement to start in 2023. Apparently, they were 
actually originally hoping to get it going as early as the PSL in 2022, but um, they've pushed that out to next year. And then, surprise, surprise, on the 25th of March, there's a general council meeting or governing council, whatever they call it, from the BCCI, where they say, you know what, let's have a women's IPL. <laughs> let's have six teams. Let's do this thing that we have been avoiding, resisting and putting off year after year after year up until now. Uh, and here we are. Yeah, it feels like they realised the PSL was about to steal a break on them. I don't think it's any secret that Ramiz Raja and his team want to have a full PSL for women and they've been exploring the options on that even beyond what we found out earlier this month like it's just you know the the uh, the gossip circles if you like are quite quite wide on this and we're part of those of course being a part of the the women's cricket community more generally and surely that would have got back to the BCCI I don't think the BCCI's model will work though I mean a watered-down version of a women's IPO where they have four teams or six teams. It'd just be a glorified mm. version of what they've done before. If they're going to do it, they've got to link it up with the men's franchises and make it a two-teams-one-club yeah. thing that we've had in the BBL and, since and that's the start. And that's not guaranteed either. So what? So the IPL model is that they will... Fir- so, you know, first thing to say is all of this is feasibility, like they're doing yeah, a feasibility yeah, yeah. study on it, which, you know, you worked in government, you know yeah, what a feasibility I study is. <laughs> about three-fifths of fuck all if they don't actually want to go ahead with with the thing, but they will offer to the existing franchises the chance to have a women's team if they want one, but those teams may not want to have them, in which case they then have to make up new teams. So it's like, you know, like maybe, you know, maybe there'll be some double up teams that has, you know, RCB or whatever that'll have a men's team and a women's team, but that won't necessarily be the case across the board. Yeah, look, I actually think we should just move beyond the women's IPL as a construct. I mean, I, I get it would have been marvellous had it happened, but it's not going to happen in a way that's going to be in the best interests of women's cricket. It seems unlikely to me that it's going to end up being the way we'd want it, um, where there's total buy-in across the franchises. Um, it's going yeah. to be a, a watered-down version of that. So let's recognise the fact that Pakistan want to go all in and let that be the third top-tier T20 comp around the world. Um, mm. we, we talked recently, Jeff, I can't remember when, about women's scheduling and how there's an opportunity to avoid making the same mistakes that have been made with the men as we get to a stage when we require a future tours program for women in a more structured way. I'm not the first person to say this, but three months of domestic women's T20 cricket, including the 100, um, so three standalone windows, BBL, 100, A and other, let's call it PSL, one in Asia, and then nine months of international cricket, which is blocked around that, seems so sensible to me. You can have your cake and eat it, so you don't have to have a situation where back in the start of the the formative years of the BBL, often was the case in the Mm. first four or five years, the the South African players would have to miss the finals and all that kind of thing. If you block out a month for the WBBL in, in October, a month for the 100 in August, let's say, and a month for an Asian competition in about March, which happens to be when the PSLs played February into March, but around then, um, then you could you could kind of nail this. And if the IPL have failed to do so until this point, okay, you know, we shake hands with them and say, don't worry about it, no big deal. There are these other domestic comps going around. You can be involved in all of them. Hopefully there wouldn't be the same barriers on, on player movement between Pakistan and India um, for the sake of these women's competitions. Yeah, I'd like but, to believe there'd be some the, open-mindedness there. Concern. Yeah, that that's I doubt there would be. So that that would be the main concern is if 
you know, if if say the PSL was the one that got up, then the big name Indian women wouldn't be playing in it, and if it was an IPL, then they wouldn't be allowed. Pakistan players, Pakistan players. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just it's the frustrations of you know, and geopolitics is much bigger than cricket, but it's still it's such a BCCI thing though to have like the big bash for the women launched 2015-16. So use that as your starting point. The BCCI have been sitting around with their dicks in their hands for seven years, you know, literally like it's all run by men at about the top nine levels of the game. And three weeks after Pakistan say they'll have a women's league, they're like, oh, yeah, let's have a women's league. That's exactly. a good idea. Like, it's, yeah. a, it's a fucking joke that this is the timing. They've had the resources. They've had the possibility. They could easily have made it and still make it a franchise requirement. Okay, you want to run a franchise in the IPL, you have a men's team and a women's team. Yep. Yep. You know, in, in the way that, that even some of the the ethically ethical swamps that are Premier League football clubs in England, for instance, are, are doing where they're realising it's not sustainable to not have a women's team. But you can't be leaving it up to franchises run by businesses like that that's got to be part of the contracts from from the word go and the fact that they've been bringing in you know they brought in new clubs this year and still had no requirement on them to do anything towards um developing women's cricket so well this will yeah. bolster the, the, <laughs> the, pro- the, the problem they've got yeah the problem they've got is that they're expanding the men's teams what we're at 10 now there's talk it'll be up to 12 soon enough right now yeah this ongoing as i understand it this ongoing debate around BCCI land has been, well, is there the depth of talent to justify having a women's IPL? If it were to oh. be a women's IPL that had a partner women's team with every club, then that'll only embolden those that have that starting point. They'll go, well, if there wasn't sufficient talent for eight, there's definitely not for 10 and 12 and so on will go. Mm-hmm. The fact mm-hmm. that the PSL 6 might help with that. So, yeah, I mean, I'm like, rip the Band-Aid off. Let the ICC say we're going to give a window for the women's PSL. Give them first mover advantage. I've always said about the WBPL, it should have been given, along with the KSL, which is now the 100, first mover advantage. Um, permit them that so the competitions aren't compromised, that you can have an elegant competition that doesn't require players to piss off to play bilateral series. Mm. And then you have nine months of the year to play international cricket. And you don't preclude the Indian, the BCCI from starting a women's comp. Far from it. You encourage them to do so, but it won't have a window. They'll miss out on that first mover advantage. If they want to have a women's IPL down the track or a, or a watered-down version of it or whatever they called that thing they had a couple of years ago, the... Um, uh, I'll be doing it again this year. The, 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 the something challenge, cha- the, the the women's you know, challenge, or whatever it is, the exhibition, Infinity the glorified challenge. Yeah, the glorified the exhibition Blazers versus the supernovas. Yeah, if, if they want to do that, they, they can do it. Go for gold, but they're not going to be given mm. the window that their men have, and that's yep. sad because they should have. They should have been part of the big three. Really, should have been the three countries out in front of this, but they won't enjoy that that benefit. There'll be more along the lines of say New Zealand's domestic T Twenty comp, where um, where you know it still exists, of course, but it doesn't have um, that primacy, I suppose, that the mm. other international leagues are, which have always been something of a global all stars. Anyway, the WBBL and the and the KSL at the start were effectively. They were already, you know, all the best players in the world were playing. Very few sat out. Mm. And if you've got three comps around the world who help raise a standard, that'll be great for Pakistani cricket as well. They only won one game at the World Cup. There's no reason they can't go on a similar ride that that South Africa or India have uh, in the last generation. Mm -hmm. Um, But with that domestic infrastructure, they could do so. And now they've got the ambition. And my understanding is is that they'll be willing to fund it properly as well. So, you know, if they want to get the best players from Australia and England, they're going to have to dosh out for it. They're not going to be able to get them to come out there for a month just for for a laugh. 
the game's changed mm. in a good way. And my understanding is the PCB won't mind. They'll be happy to play ball mm. on that front. So I think we get behind that. It feels to me like a yep. good solution. And that's that's what's going to pull through, you know, local talent that will be able to be developed over the next five or six years in the way that we've seen with the Big Bash. Exactly. Um, which moves us on to the Women's World Cup. Yeah. The group stage. I mean, what a group stage. So we're, oh. the semifinals are coming. All right. Uh, Australia's playing West Indies and England's playing South Africa. That's, you know, that wouldn't be super unsurprising at the start, although I suppose if if you were guessing at the start, some people might have put New Zealand in for home advantage. They would definitely have put India in there, who missed out at the very, very, very last gasp. But as far as the group stage goes, I mean, how many games were decided in the final over? It seems like more than half. I think it was. Um, I think it's like a dozen. Uh, it's yeah. the it's the best World Cup ever so far, men or women, as far as close finishes are concerned, and. The fact that the group stage went all the way down to the last ball um, sums that mm. up pretty well, and we'll come to that game in a sec, Jeff. But yeah, if we can, if they can finish it with two close semis, or even one close semi and a, and a really competitive final, like we had in mm. 2017, where there were two excellent semi-finals or a brilliant solo performance in India, Australia, and um, and a last gasp between England and South Africa, which sent us to Lords and another brilliant finish there. Then yeah, I don't think there'll be any doubt. This is the best World Cup ever. Um, the only sad part, Jeff, is that there aren't that many people there to cover it because of the New Zealand quarantine requirements, which have eased now, but it never felt like they were going to ease when people were planning around this. And you can't just on a whim fly to New Zealand. That's not viable. You know, organisations don't send journalists halfway through a tournament in a situation like this. So I, I still lament the fact that it yep. was played in New Zealand on that basis, yet that there aren't more people there. But thankfully, COVID hasn't been a big factor and we've reach this stage of the tournament with um, the players fit and firing and the teams that are left. Yeah, sure. Australia should win the thing, really. But I think that it's pretty open beyond that. That's cool. Yes, the Australians have have gone through unbeaten as expected pretty much. They did have this interesting wobble against Bangladesh. They yeah, reduced yeah. game 43 overs. Bangladesh make 135. And then Australia lose five wickets chasing it. So the Bangladeshis dismissed Lanning, Perry, Healy, Haynes and Gardner for 38 runs collectively. Selma Katoon, the off-spinner, opening the bowling, three for 23 off nine. And Beth Mooney, who got them home, was 66 not out. I... I increasingly think – I think she's the best player in the Australian team these yeah. days, Beth Mooney. I think she's gone past even the, the big namers because her versatility, and particularly in crisis situations, like she's she's so good when she needs to bunker down for a while. She can score so quickly when called upon to do so. And her coolness under pressure, you know, that 100 she made in the crazy chase against India last September, switching it up for this sort of innings when it's needed. Uh, I mean, uh, I just think she's she's continued to level up. We thought she'd level up a lot in 2020 when she won the Belinda Clark Award and, and was so good through that T20 World Cup win. But I think she's even better now. I don't know whether this will stick, but I'll give it a go. I think if you were splitting the two, Meg Lanning would win the best and fairest and Beth Mooney might be an MVP. Do you know what I'm trying to say there? <laughs> like Meg Lanning would be day in, day out. Maybe I'm getting it the wrong way around. What I'm trying to say is, is that Lanning's your most important sort of asset as far as the way she can set a game up and win a game and nothing's unchaseable for her and she's obviously got the mm. greatest record ever in one-day cricket. But Mooney, for, through what you described, that versatility, coolness in a crisis... She's done yeah. it so many times with Australia in strife. Um, at T20 level, being able to almost play the sheet anchor role 
yet at one day level, yeah, she can she can hustle down at number five or number six as required. Mm. She can open. The, there's no real room for her to open anymore, which is kind of remarkable no. in itself. So, yeah, I think the two of them are as important as each other for different reasons. And I'm thrilled to see it. You know, we've been on the Mooney bandwagon since the very start. And it's nice when mm. something like that pays off as it has for her in the last 24 months or thereabouts. Uh, your South Africans, their only loss was to Australia. They look like they should be the other finalists. They look they look like the much better team than England now, whereas in 2017 it was, was the yeah. other way around. England won their four in a row as expected but have looked pretty shit ass in the process, sort of staggered past India by four wickets, then staggered past New Zealand by one wicket. And your shrubs all hit the winning runs in that game when they were nine down. And then she's been dropped for the last pool game for Freya Davies, who's come in, so I don't know what that means for the semis, but... Um, you know, she looked increasingly ineffective with the ball, Shrubsole, and, you know, the, the player who bowled them to victory in the last World Cup final uh, may or may not be there this time around, even if they do make it. Yeah, all, all I'd say is that England's bowling, for the most part, has held up. So, you know, each of the bowlers have had good games and bad games, but they've kind of kept the train on the tracks. It's the batting that looks like it's blowing hot and cold. So, yes, up against South Africa, who would be equal with Australia as the best bowling group in women's cricket at the moment. That's where England will be exposed. It's where they were exposed in their group game against South Africa. They had a pretty good game with the ball there, but weren't able to finish the job in that close chase. Remember, it was uh, Eccleston and Cross at the end who probably should have won the game and didn't, and that gave them a third loss, and that put them on the precipice. But, yeah, that the fact they need, needed to win every game to get through, and they were helped by a couple of results breaking their way too. And they get the, the better of the two semifinals. England would have thought that if they were to sneak through... Uh, the most likely scenario at that stage would have been getting into fourth and and copying Australia, but sneaking into third because of India choking. And I don't mean that like, you know, India did well at different times, but India had opportunities. They had their destiny in their own hands for the the entirety of the group stage and didn't make it through. means that England get up into third and the West Indies qualify fourth unexpectedly. I say unexpectedly because of the way that last game finished. Again, we'll we'll arrive there momentarily. Well, also the way West Indies played against Bangladesh and against Pakistan, who they lost to. I mean, they were really poor after their first couple of games. Definitely. And they... They basically got lucky because their their game against South Africa was a washout, so their opportunity to be beaten by South Africa they avoided, whereas India did have to play South Africa and yes. they ended up losing from the last ball. Yeah, just to reloop back to England, what I'd say it's in their favour is that, well, one, a number of world champions in that team, and that can never be completely ruled out. Like, they know how to get it done. Like play, Very senior players like Knight, Sivar, Brunt, Shrub Soul. There are there are a core group there where the Anya plays in the dressing room. They've got a number of very Beaumont, Winfield Hill, who are there and thereabouts with the team at the moment. And there'll be others I'm missing there. And I also think about the twenty eighteen T twenty World Cup where England, I think, were washed out twice to start. Then they lost a game, a bad loss. I think they got beaten by the West Indies. And then they were in a similar situation to this. They needed to run the table to make the final and they did and they did so by beating India who are highly fancied coming into that semi they'd won their group stage they'd beaten Australia and they pulled off a big upset through their senior players delivering that's what I'd be holding on to if I were England that they've got the ability to they've got a much higher ceiling than has what's been on display so far and if they play well in a semi well you know they should be able to match it with South Africa 
but yeah, South Africa certainly the the more informed of the two teams, as you as you pointed out. Yeah, in a in a La Nina summer, I reckon England's high ceiling has fallen in. But the yeah, the India South Africa game was was a beauty. Um, Mandana seventy one, Matali Raj sixty eight, and that's presumably her last game for India. But you know, yep. um, goes out in in her true style, making a half century. At a good clip as well. She didn't. She's been under uh, pressure for batting slowly at times, but didn't didn't do so. Was not a runner ball, but not too far off. Shafali Verma makes fifty three. Harmapreet makes forty eight. So they're big guns all fire in that innings. They make two seventy four, which you know in in any past tournament would be more than enough. And then in uh, South Africa somehow managed to chase it. Laura Vulvart, 80 at a run a ball. Mignon Dupree makes 52. India keep prizing out wickets, three runouts, and mostly due to really good fielding, not to sort of South Africa losing their heads. Um, Chloe Tryon coming in, you wouldn't think an innings of 17 would be match turning, but it was really important, 17 off nine balls, yep. and that just got them close enough. And then the last over, they need seven off six. Mignon Dupree caught down the ground by Harman Preet. And it turns out to be the only no ball of the innings that India bowled. Deepsy Sharma's overstepped the the final word video. Umpire <laughs> picks it up. In it's a sort of no ball that would never have been called before. You know, it was by. I mean, the commentary said something about a game of inches. It was it was a game of millimeters at that point. But it was a no ball. She was over the line, but only just. Yeah, so <laughs> extraordinary. Dupree gets a let off. They score singles from the last three deliveries and, and win the game by one run yeah, off the last a, ball. It was an amazing game to watch the end of, as I was in A&E yesterday. The people around me would have wondered what was going on. A guy has not moved a muscle since pulling up a pew is like jumping around in his seat. Anyway, it could have gone either way. It was a decision that was made quite quickly. Often, you know, you get to see the third umpire deliberations, but I'm not sure how it works with broadcasts, but the comms all the way off the ground were talking to Priya off the ground and then it was like, hang on a minute. And this was captured magnificently by the ICC's video team. As we know, at World Tournaments, they make the best montages and they've done another one of these cracking videos that's gone out this morning with Nat Germanos, who's friend of the show and did a splendid job calling the big moments there. But the look on her face when they... Um, on the Snoop cam in the commentary box when she realises yeah. it's about to be called a no-ball... And Hypercourse made a good point here. And I've noticed this too when India were playing in England last year. Deepthi Sharma does this a lot. And by this, I mean overstepping one. But two, she twice in that over ran through the crease and she was never going to bowl. Like, it's a bit of gamesmanship, which I'm cool with. Like, I'm okay with. Like, no dramas. If you want to – I would I would argue that if you're going to do the gamesmanship, at least pretend to mancad. She doesn't mm. seem to do that bit. She just does the running through the crease to put a batter off. And she did that yeah. the ball before. And I'm okay with it. Like – whatever, as long as your overrates are sufficient, although with India, often they're not. That's cool. Like, do what you need to do. What it does do, though, I think, is elevate the chance of you making a skill error like this. And she did. You know, she overstepped at the most crucial of crucial moments in her career. And the look on the Indian team, I mean, they were just absolutely mortified that that was the, that was the turning point of the match because if that decision stood, the probability of South Africa striking three runs off one ball, look, they might have done. They might have hit a boundary to win the game. But you'd think with a new batter coming out, three off the last ball, it's India's game unless something mm. remarkable happens. But instead, they needed two off two and, and did so pretty easily. So... Yeah, crazy finish. Saywag noted on Twitter he, he put up a, a screen grab of the no ball and he put up a screen grab of Jasbit Boomer overstepping in the Champions Trophy final of 2017 with um, uh-huh. Fakas Amin, wasn't it, on about, I don't know, 20-odd? Mm. Was he even less than that? Bugger all. And Fakka, of course, went on to make a 
final defining century, tournament defining century. Mm. And he kind of talked up the idea, you know, the idea of half an inch either way can change a whole tournament. He's right. It can. It'll be a lesson again to bowlers around the world that you need to make an adjustment because if you're going to push up against the line, it might backfire in spectacular circumstances. And that's why India are out of the tournament. They are. They are out of the tournament. And it is it is a sad way for um, Chulan Goswami and Mithali Raj to go. I would have liked to see them have one last yeah. tilt at, at the big stuff, you know, especially after falling short in 2017. But South Africa up there with their chance, um, England still in the scrap and West Indies, if they can pull out of their slump, the, uh, the ones to try to challenge Australia. We'll get to West Indies and England in the test match in a minute. But first, let's play a little game. Yes, let's do that, Jeff. Uh, we do have a, another little segment to get to off the back here, but uh, what better time for you to tell me a story via the medium of... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. Uh, it's a game. It's a game that we play with people on the internet. Uh, on the Patreon page, people fund the show. They send us contributions, and those contributions are not normal denominations of a currency, but they're uh, a specific amount that relates to cricket in some way, and we have to figure out what it is. The number, the Nerd Pledge number this week is $2.27. It is from Sheetal Portdar and 227. Now, Adam, I will tell you one thing. I definitely haven't got the right answer for this because Sheetal did send us a clue and I did not have it in the spreadsheet and I solved this question to my satisfaction and then found the clue afterwards and thus know that it is not correct, but it's a good answer nonetheless. No, I I like that, Jeff. I I like already that you've um, got on the front foot and revealed all there. I'll just say one more thing about the other day. I picked up you and Bernard having your chat on Storytime. I forgot you guys were recording that. I picked it up as I started my long walk from the gate at Heathrow to the baggage carousel and then the sort of the many minutes I spent waiting there um, that I mentioned before and listened to the entirety of it. And it was was just what I needed at that particular moment in time, (laughs) hearing you two. It was one of my favourite episodes of the show, I think. And Brat was a fine co-host and he really got into the spirit of story time as one of our fellow patrons, you'd expect. I like that he acknowledged, though, that even though he's a patron, he's never listened to the story time editions of the show, which is quite funny. (laughs) But but he really understood, you know, instinctively what he needed to do so for those who haven't listened to story time last week with jeff and barat in the middle of the night probably around the same time that the car accident was happening come to think of mm. it because you said you were recording at about 1am there you go yeah it was just just before we got the news from you right yeah that that makes sense i can recommend it as a listener that it was very good yeah well it was fundamentally i said to barat you know do you want to do this thing it, it'll be some work and it'll be late at night and you know it'll take about an hour and, and he was like Jeff, he's like, every night in in this room that we're in, we spend at least an hour talking absolute bullshit when we should be going to sleep. So he's like, it's fine. We'll just do that, but turn the recorder on. So yes, having uh, having Bharat's Ravi Shastri on the show was oh, something that was, was needed for a long time. Very, very funny. Have a chill one on me. Nerd Pledge, 227, Sheetal Portar. Here's where I went. Here's where I went, Sheetal. 227, I thought Vinod Cambly is someone we've never really talked about much on the final word on story time we we know a fair bit about vino cambly uh, adam or we, you know everybody knows of him yep. um, in association mostly with tendulkar when they 
put on a partnership of 664 runs in a schoolboy game, the sort of when Tendulkar was then the, the heir apparent to the batting throne. Um, Sachin's a bit younger, but he debuts in 1989 and Vinod Kambli doesn't debut for India until 1993. Has a crazy beginning to his career. And this wasn't really this part of the story I hadn't looked into it much before. So he's playing England in India, makes 34 runs for once out on debut across two innings, makes 59 in the second test, and then makes 224 in his third test at the Workrest and Play Stadium um, at the Wanker Day. That's in one series. Then his fourth test, his fifth innings a month later, Zimbabwe tour, he makes 227. That's Sheetal's number. So at this point, only Don Bradman and Wally Hammond have made back-to-back double centuries in test cricket ever until this stage. After this point, Sangakara, Michael Clark, and Virat Kohli get added to the list. So that's still a crazy list for Vinod Kambli to be on. Uh, this is in the space of five innings that mm. he's made, these, these two double hundreds to start his career. Goes to Sri Lanka, makes two more centuries in his next three innings. So he's made four hundreds in eight innings, two of them doubles, averaging 113, right? Uh, and, but then over the next sort of year and a half, he has a couple of ordinary series against New Zealand, one against West Indies, and that's it. He's done by 1995. He plays 17 tests. He's age 23 and he never plays test cricket again, despite having this incredible record. So it's hard to work out whether he's a victim of like India's increasing batting depth at the time or just the selectorial capriciousness and the feuds and the different state associations that hate each other and the politics and all the rest of it. But never gets never gets another shot at Test cricket, a guy who made 400s in eight innings to start his career and he's done by the time he's played 17 Test matches. He's still, to this day, he's one of India's very few Test players to average over 50, having met the qualification of 20 innings, I think it is, to be counted in the 50-plus club. And that Coley club is doesn't. shrinking. No, I, well, I was going to say, because when I, you know, I, I sort of, I know the list, but when I was first looking at it a couple of years ago, Pajara and Kohli were both on there. There were six for India all up. And now there's four because they're gone. Pajara and Kohli have both dropped out. So it's Gavaska, Tendulkar, Dravid and Vinod Kambli. That's it. Um, they're the only ones remaining. There's also this interesting quirk that he very rarely batted in the second team innings of a test match. He rarely had to because most of the time they won by an innings or it was a draw or whatever. So he only batted in the third or fourth innings on seven occasions, meaning that his second innings average is nine and his first innings average is 69. Nice. Which must be one of the highest disparities in terms of anyone who's who's played a reasonable number of test matches. Yeah, I think I think we didn't we pick up on one of these recently. Oh no, uh, it's uh, Rohit Sharma, isn't it? Rohit Sharma's mm. home away record. Home and away. Is, yeah, it's not first innings, second innings, third innings, fourth innings. That you're articulating there. I know yep. Mark War used to be criticised for this that his first innings average was much higher than his second. And I mm. think it was the reverse with Dino, where he had a higher yep. second in- innings average than first. Either way, that does stand out. But you would think that for his backers, they would point to the first number. Gee, anyone who's setting up mm. a test match averaging 69. But I'm certain, and I'm speaking without authority here because I've never really read too much around Cambly's sacking, but it surely relates to the internal politics of the day. 
Yeah, you you would assume so, but you'd also think that if he was in that sort of Tendulkar mates club, you know, Mumbai schoolboys and all the rest of it, he'd be pretty well set. Um, anyway, he so he kept playing in one day as for five more years um, until he was 28. So this is the curious bit. This is the real quirk. Played 104 one-day games for India and made two centuries. <laughs> Played 17 tests, made 500s and couldn't get another gig or 400s, whatever it was. So he was, however, the first player to ever make a one-day international century on his birthday. (laughs) On his birthday. If you're not careful, he's got 100 on his birthday. Uh, And the other bit I like is that he didn't announce his international retirement until 2011. (laughs) So he was was 39 years old and hadn't played tests in 16 years when he formally announced that he would not be available for selection if if requested at any time. Did he, um, did he get uh, an opportunity to play in the IPL? I'm not sure who it was that you and Badat were talking about the other day, but there was a player who was, like, very old and had played... Oh, uh, Pankos Germani. Uh, I wonder whether um, Campbell got some IPL action in those last few years of his mm-hmm. domestic career, assuming he was still playing domestic up, cricket so. around 2011. Yeah. Well, of course, Greg Matthews never retired, still available for selection if they wanted to bring <laughs> you back. Um, he, he often uses that as part of his after-dinner speaking routine that he never retired. He's still there if they want him. <laughs> Now, normally at this point of the show, Adam, we would take a break and probably at the moment if we took that break we would talk about Woodstock cricket bats and how good they are. But we don't need to do that because our next segment is about England <laughs> playing the West Indies and these two things go together. Joshua De Silva, the West Indies wicketkeeper, just made his first test century with his Woodstock bat. He got exactly 100 not out out of 297, vital 100 when he came in, so England had made 204. West Indies were cooked. They were six for 95 and done. Uh, De Silva had been pushed down to eight. He'd normally bat seven, but because they brought in Kyle Mayers as the all-rounder, he was batting at seven. Uh, and so with the last few, with the tail basically, with Mayers first and then with the tail of Alzari Joseph, Kemo Roach and Jaden Seals, Josh De Silva adds 202 runs, gets West Indies a substantial lead in the, in the context and sets up a test match win. What yeah, and, and even before that, England are what? I mean, I'm, uh, you know, they're eight for ninety odd or something before Sakib Mahmood and Jack Leach become the highest scorer and the second highest scorer in the innings. And the West Indies have the same thing happened to them as you point out here, ninety five for six. So it reinforces that it was a wild first two days to start that Test match. England getting two hundred and two, and then and then that's exactly the number of runs that. Uh, De Silva adds with his tail um, getting his first 100 great response 204 today sorry but 202 for De Silva in those bottom partnerships that pretty much negates what England did in the first innings and his response to getting to three figures was brilliant too it was a slap down the ground it was kind of a a cross-court forehand type shot and he knew (laughs) it was going to the boundary as soon as it passed the stumps at the non-striker's end, which meant he was able to sprint, even though the commentators didn't necessarily know at that point, he was sprinting down with his arms in the air, um, roaring to the sky. It was a great moment, great celebration, and beautiful photos of him with that glorious Woodstock blade. How proud are we? Um, Woodstock uh, producing their first test player, well, certainly their first current 
test player. They've got uh, people who have played they're, test they're cricket. They're first on their acknowledged books. test player because there were yeah. plenty of players in the 90s who made hundreds with Woodstock bats. They just put the Adidas stickers on them or whatever to satisfy well, their, um, their well, sponsors. That, well, that's right. And the other parts of this is that, you know, Steve Finn played test cricket, of course, but he wasn't using a Woodstock at the time. But an out and out Woodstock, um, you know, a proper test batter. Uh, Josh De Silva will be, and that's bloody exciting. Uh, and it was the defining contribution of the Test match because um, England were all out for 120 the second time around, which left the West Indies only 28 to make to win the Test, and they did that inside about four overs. But the the second time around, Jeff, it was Kyle Mayers. I mean, Kyle Mayers picks up Joe Root for a duck in the first innings. Mm-hmm. Uh, gets two for 13 off 10. At one stage in the second, he's got five for nine. His wicket celebrations are incredible. He bowls 120 clicks. Pretty uh-huh. gentle stuff. Well, A, I love, I love that there's still room in the test game for a guy who bowls 120, first things first. Mm-hmm. But two, I didn't even really know he bowled much. I mean, I know he did bowl a bit on test debut and he made his double hundred, but mm-hmm. yeah, it looks as though if you end up with match figures of seven for 31... Uh, you're going to be doing a lot of bowling over the years to come, <laughs> even if you only bowl at well, medium pace. Two things I will note, Adam. One, I enjoyed every person who posted a variation of the gag that said, if only English county cricket prepared players to face 70-mile-an-hour seamers. <laughs> um, <laughs> very good, very good. Well done, all of you, um, <laughs> on on the money. The other thing I'll note is that Kyle Mayers was a bowler before he was a batter. Like, he was he was oh, considered right. a bowling all-rounder first, which is the reason that his double hundred on debut was such an absolute fucking freak of an effort like, and such so an incredible picked, thing for him to do. So he picked originally for the – I must I acknowledge my ignorance here. Was he picked as a bowler mm-hmm. who could bat for the Windies first up? I'm surprised to hear that. Not so much go. for the Windies, but more as um, – so in domestically uh, when he – because he was playing for Barbados, I think, originally – and not getting a, a very good run at the team. And then he went off to play for, for one of the smaller um, first-class setups for the Windward Islands, perhaps. I may be getting my territories wrong, but, but that rough progression, he went from one of the... He went from New South Wales to Tasmania in right. Sheffield Shield terms, was principally a bowler who was useful with the bat. And then once he'd moved to the, the Leewards or the Windwards, um, whichever it may have been, he suddenly had a season where he averaged 50 with the bat. And so the West ah. Indies kind of in desperation for that Bangladesh tour when a lot of players pulled out. You remember they threw in a bunch of fairly untested players yep. and they put Mayers at five. And, you know, it was a bit like a, you know, Steve Smith started out as a league spinner kind of thing. It was like popping him up at five after he'd been batting at nine in his previous incarnation in the test team. It was like, oh, well, give it a go. It's like putting Moses Enriquez at five in, in Sri Lanka in 2016, that kind of thing. And it worked because he made a double hundred on debut and chased 395 to win and won them a <laughs> test match. Happy days. Uh, somebody asked uh, Swamp, the stato on Twitter, about players getting a double ton and a five for quickly. So Mayos has done that now within his first 11 test matches. Uh, Frank Worrell and Wally Hammond did it within 10 test matches and Elise Perry did it in seven. They're the only players to get a double and a five for faster than Kyle Mayers. Right. I guess that would have been around the time that Wally had his cock problems too. Mm. Yes. Yep. Within the first 10 tests, sorry. Within the first 10 test matches. A double ton. Probably. A and Nobrot. He's and the only Nobrot. one that has that. 
Yeah. He's the that. only one, as far as we know. Although, yeah, well, look, I, nobody's asked Kyle Mayers in a presser, but it hasn't come up. <laughs> hasn't come up as yet. Okay. Um, so we, for Wally, but after that. Yeah, so we've got, there's the England conversation that we've had a number of times, Jeff. I mean, they've won one of their last 17. Roots' record over the winter stacks up, having made two tonnes in the first two tests of the series. But other than that, and Johnny Bairstow, who I think averages 46 across the winter in a smaller sample mm-hmm. size, it is very grim, including players they were hoping would be part of what they've described as the Red Bull reset. Folks has had a stinker. Uh-huh. So they're in a situation. And I know, I know they made some runs in the first two test matches. Yeah. You know, there was the Stokes the runs, runs mostly, for They mostly came from players who you already know can make runs. So Bairstow made 100, Stokes made 100, Root made 100. It's okay, great. And then there was the kind of anomalous Zach Crawley 100, you know, the, the yes. occasional beginnings that he can produce. Dan Lawrence looked pretty good. He was a bright spot, bowled okay on occasion, made 91. At one stage, maybe there's something there. But, yeah, I mean, this thing of taking the alternative squad, leaving Broad and Anderson out, and then they end up in the third test with Chris Wokes and Craig Overton doing the bowling. Like, what do they not know about Chris Wokes and Craig Overton that they're going to find out in the third test in the West Indies? Fisher debuted and then got injured. Uh, Mahmood looked good on occasion. But, yeah, like, what... What did they get out of out of the way they approached that tour? Yeah, Mahmood led the bowling and batting averages on the trip, so there's, there's something there. Yeah. Uh, I think he made well, he made 49, didn't he, to top score yeah. in that first innings, which is a staggering stat considering he's. I think he's got like more first class wickets than runs or something like that. He's a proper number mm-hmm. 11, but he may not be for long. They didn't play Parkinson. Disappointing. I mean, Fisher looked good, but. Is Fisher going to provide a point of difference at his pace? Probably not. Away from home, that is, at least. The contrast was there in watching Nassim Shah and Shaheen Sharafridi open the bowling for Pakistan. And you think, mm. okay, so you've got the sort of serious countries right now have a couple of people bowling heat and England don't because they've, uh, they're all injured. And then their two best bowlers, ignoring pace, are on the sidelines. And, you know, Chris Wokes has had very little success away from home for England. Maybe that might be his last tour. I think Overton will be the most disappointed of the, of the lot because he gets this opportunity in his second proper go at Test cricket. You could argue it's his third and, and hasn't been impressive enough to ensure that he'll get another one um, at the start of the home summer. Ollie Robinson wasn't fit enough to play over there, which has been noted by everybody that that's an ongoing and now serious problem and it might do his chances of a proper test career an awful lot of harm if you can't get that basic standard of fitness right this early in your career what's it going to be like when you're sort of mm. playing around the world and all that comes with that you need to have that discipline as Robert Walls would say and stood out it was very England that they even in this situation they wouldn't play the leg spinner they're like nah. yeah no know. need no need to have a look at him and no look need. Leach did a good job on the trip as best I can tell but yeah but you know are they looking at is this really a Red Bull reset or is this just kind of like uh, around the edges? And, and it lends itself to the conversation around Joe Root's captaincy. Just yep. let, let the boy have a breather. You know, take him out of the firing line. We said this, Jeff, didn't we, after the Melbourne mm. loss in two and a half days. doesn't have to be forever. It doesn't have to be forever. Get him out of the firing line. Leave him alone. 
Stop mm. letting Joe Root have to do media to to justify the you know to defend the indefensible, to do the I don't know you know we're making progress. There, what what's that, that that line he often uses? We're learning you know what we're learning more and more. All this sort of stuff. It's not yeah. Root's fault that this team is big shit. steps forward. He goes, we've we've taken some big steps. Yeah. forward. Yeah, and that was taken out of context. Um, I noted. I, I saw that tweet and listened to it. What he meant by that. Uh, was that that they were able to bat? He was talking about holistically in the series, and that they they sure. the big steps forward he was referring to were, I think, the fact that they batted for long stretches of time in the first two test matches, which they failed to do in the third. But they weren't able to do that in Australia. So he was that that was a little bit out of context, but nonetheless, it does look like a bad grab when pulled out and popped on social media. So who who might become the captain though? That's a much trickier question to answer. People are talking up Sam Billings again, who made his debut in Hobart, given that. Folks hasn't gone well. Seeing some uh-huh. chatter, seeing some chat around Tom Abel to come in. Very eighties from England. There, bringing in a guy who's not played Test cricket and asking him to captain the team. He has a very good we'll team lead at Somerset. On. Lead him on exactly. Some chat yeah. around Owen Morgan. I mean, fair to Oh, that's fanciful. Absolutely, he doesn't deserve a spot in the White Ball team. I no, mean, no. Well, he hasn't be, been in England's best White Ball eleven for about three years. Well, that would be a total Brealey that you know we've got Lee Germani and Tom Abel and we've got Mike Brealey and Owen Morgan and on, the, on that but basis, he's already I mean, a Brealey he's Brealey in the T20 team <laughs> and and if you rearrange the letters he's barely in the T20 team yeah. I still think I mean I hate to be repetitive and to bang away at something I said three months ago but like England are fucked at the moment right like if you just mm-hmm. accept that they're fucked and there's no good answer there's only a series of bad answers then I genuinely, sincerely believe that for the home summer, remember seven test matches coming up, right? Seven. Yeah. It's a lot of cricket. It could be enough to destroy the next captain, right? For seven test matches, just fucking take a beat and let Stuart Broad be captain with Jimmy. Let Effectively, Broad be captain. And if Broad needs to miss a test through injury or rotation, let Jim do it for the week. They lose nothing Mm. out of that. They're going to play in the summer. They're going to go back to Broad Nelson in the summer. It doesn't matter. It genuinely doesn't matter. It's just stop for a minute and make a good decision. Yep. They're not they're not rushing to a decision around a director of cricket. They're not rushing to a decision around the coach. They shouldn't rush to a decision around the captain. They've you know and if it's there's like, if there's something in this sort of idea that those two are snippy and difficult or whatever in the dressing room or whatever, well then fine, make them do the job. If they make life yeah. difficult for a captain, make them the captains. And, and it's Put just them an up acknowledgement. At the presses every day and see how they like it. Yeah, it's and just also, it's, you know, you give them the respect, but you also make them do the work. It's just an acknowledgement that it's fucked at the moment. It's like when you lose an election in Britain, there's effectively a caretaker leader of the party for a number of months before they have the leadership election. Unlike Australia yeah. where the party room just appoint the next leader of the opposition. In England, it can take like yeah. months. Remember Harriet Harman was leader of the party after the 2010 defeat, mm. for example. Why wouldn't they sort of view this as like, we have, we're losing landslide elections here. We've won one test match in 17. We need a safe pair of hands, a statesman-like figure, a party elder to stick with the analogy. Broad and Anderson, just look after it. Just don't do anything crazy. Yep. Just, just chill. Get us through this really, really tough transition period. They're probably going to sack the chief executive or Tom Harris is going to leave the job. It sounds like Rob Key might take on the director of cricket role, who would be an outstanding appointment. I really hope he does it. I mean, sad that he wouldn't be a colleague in broadcast for a while while he's doing the job and sad that he'd be taking a much harder job, relatively speaking, because he'd be under enormous amounts of scrutiny and we'd probably have to say mean things about him from time to time in our roles. But strikes me as Mm. the guy with the right temperament, thinks hard about the game. He's been 
he's not that far removed generationally from this group. He was still playing county cricket five years ago. Feels like a good fit. And give Rob the chance to build something, but don't foist upon him a new captain or or a new coach or, or something like that. Just use this summer as stop the rot summer. One against mm. India, three against New Zealand, three against a pretty ordinary South African team. They'll be competitive at home. They're always competitive at home because of the surfaces, especially with Anderson and Broad there. I think they should be thinking, let's just get through this bit. And I, they could do a lot worse than just give it to the mm. old blokes and give themselves some space. And hope, like God, that a couple of players come through in the top order at exactly. some point who might be exactly. able to do the job. Well, let Tom, yeah, Abel, let Tom Abel and Sam Billings play test cricket, right? That's how I would do yeah. it. I'd go, Sam, you're keeping for seven test matches. You know, Tom, you're batting six. You know, and you'll, you'll bowl a bit of medium pace. If it works out, works out. If it doesn't, okay, at least they've had a crack at trying for something sure. like that. Imagine they pop Sam Billings and made him captain for the start of the home summer and it doesn't go well. And they yeah, have to start. And he loses again. the first three test matches, and then imagine how like exactly epically terrible it gets for him from there. Exactly, and as Mike Atherton points out repeatedly, or well, he did through the summer, you can't yeah. start that job on a cold. You, you can't do that job on a cold start. You need to know what it's yeah. like to be a test cricketer for a while before considering that. And if they really are keen on Billings to do it, you've got to give him a chance to, to feel like a test cricketer first. Give him a summer. Before bombing, before bombing a player out with a career record that says eight test matches, seven captains, seven lost. Yeah, you know. e- exactly that. Anyway, just a bit of broad... I, I don't think they should rule it out. And, and I think they kind of had, but time to reconsider. Mm. Righto. I think that's just about us for the week. Um, this will come out before the Women's World Cup game on Tuesday. Well, the game's on Wednesday, so this show should come out on Tuesday. Wednesday, I will go to the MCG, Adam, on your behalf great. as well to farewell SKW. Um, yep. So I've sorted seats for that. Uh, great. And so I'll report back on on that next week and um, you know, hopefully there'll be a, a fair amount of Melbourne Final Word crew there as well. So maybe, we, maybe we'll Jump on the meetups page and, and arrange a yeah. little meeting in the in the pub afterwards or something. I, I was going to suggest to the to the crew in England if this test match was still going, I was going to try and catch up with the the uh, the England crew for the end of the windy series. But obviously that's not happening for a couple of reasons. One, the series is over, and two, I'm in no fit state to do it anyway. Uh, mm. But um, maybe at some point uh, when the county season begins, which Jeff is only about nine or ten days away so uh, we can arrange some sort of London maybe at the Oval or Middle Sexy sort of you know Surrey sort of area I know that's a bit reductive Middle Sexy Middle middle Sexy Surrey (laughs) I can't believe you just said Middle Sexy sexy. I know dreadful isn't it (laughs) if you've listened this far you will know I'm a long way from my most articulate today Um, please Uh, forgive me but yeah the um it's, it's it's like the spectrum. You go, not sexy, super sexy, middle, middle sexy. sexy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I feel a bit bad about making everything in London about the podcast that we do stuff around here, but, you know, such is the way of the world when it comes to cricket in this country that it does become a little bit London-centric. Indeed. Uh, right, that's enough from us. We will attempt to make story time on the weekend, assuming that Adam is uh, relatively lucid and sober. We'll do it. We'll do um, one. We'll do one. Various we might do a short... We'll we, do might do, we might do a... Yeah, I'm going to be on serious painkilling medication from the minute we finish this show. I'm going to take my first batch of it. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm also thinking that whilst on painkillers, I might be able to drum up some pretty loose stories for story yeah. time. Maybe even I might take some painkillers before recording story time. Yeah. That might be another like. way to see what it's like. 
Yeah. Yeah. I can go full celebrity painkiller addiction and end up in rehab mm. or something. Well, if Barat and I could do a story time after uh, 16 or 17 hours a week, um, a I, thought gonna say, I thought you were going to say, I thought you were going to say, I was going to say, I think going to say 16 or 17 of the Chinese beers we're enjoying <laughs> in that, um, in that beautiful bar. And if Sultan is listening from the bar, yeah. at the from the bar at the, uh, where were we? The, Con- the Pearl Continental in yeah. Lahore. We love you and we miss you. Sultan was the bar manager who had to put up with a lot of bullshit through the week we were there, not because of us, I say. We all befriended him, but he was a, a fabulous pool player um, and, uh, and pal. Mm. And he knew a lot about room 489 by the end of his week. A raconteur, uh, yep. Sultan. Yep. Yeah, cheers to you. Righto, this has been the final word, uh, Cricket Podcast. We will be back on the weekend and uh, we'll talk to you next time you press play. Bye. I had to go about it.